You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. You know, as a former union member, a union activist, as well as agent, and a student of labor history, I have always been one who has subscribed to Samuel Gopper's approach to unions, and more specifically, his belief that unionism should be, quote, pure and simple. Now, for those of you who have not studied labor history, Samuel Gompers was an opponent of socialism. He studied socialism, he associated with socialists, but he did not view the union movement as the tool to be used for socialist revolution. And as Marxism grew in the early 1900s, his belief in pure and simple unionism only became more vehement. And to me, even when I was a union agent, I have always believed that unions are like a business and they should service their customers, i.e. their members, as a business. When I was a union agent, my belief in this was based in logic. I never believed that unions should be used in political and ideological causes, regardless of the issue, because inevitably that would alienate a significant portion of the membership. And if our business is to service that membership, you don't want to have unhappy customers. And I remember having this conversation more than three decades ago with a a few fellow union agents. One was a vice president of the local, as a matter of fact. Now, that idea of pure and simple unionism has not changed for me in the last 30 years since I left the union movement. However, I realize that the vast majority of union leaders today are on the opposite end of this debate. Most union leaders today have, at some level, subscribed to the notion of class warfare and Marxist doctrine. And they're using unions and, by extension, their union members' dues to drive a fundamental transformation in America. And more specifically, most union leaders have decided to weigh in on social and political issues that, if nothing else, tend to divide society at the macro level and their members from within. Regardless how you feel about specific issues, it's somewhat irrelevant, but just know it's happening. So one of the issues that has been in the news a lot over the last few years has been this issue of, quote, gender ideology, and more specifically, teachers' unions' roles in pushing this further in schools and further down into the lower grade levels. Now, As a parent whose kids are grown, I've kind of only watched this from afar, and I don't watch television news, so most of what I see is what I pick up in my news feeds and whether or not to publish them on laborunionnews.com. So as someone who leans somewhat libertarian, I really could care less what grown adults do as long as they don't push it on others. However, when it comes to kids, that's a different topic, and it has a lot of moral economic, and societal implications that I find really interesting. However, I've been curious, is this 
a real thing or is it being hyper-politicized in the world we live in today? Is it something that's more of a political fight that politicians and pundits are using to drive people to the polls or is it really happening? So last week, I saw an article from the Freedom Foundation entitled NEA's Schools in Transition Guide Instructs Teachers to Encourage Transgenderism in the Classroom. And as I read it, as well as visited the links that were in the article, I found several things that were interesting about it. So as I always do when I see something that intrigues me, I reached out to the Freedom Foundation to see if I could find the writer or get the writer of that article to come on to Labor Relations Radio. And joining me today is Maddie Derman. She's a research and policy analyst with the Freedom Foundation, and she's written a number of articles on the teachers' unions, which I'll include under the audio portion of this episode. So without further ado, here's Maddie Derman. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Maddie Derman from the Freedom Foundation, how are you today? Great. I'm so happy to be here today, Peter. Well, I figured we could, excuse me, have some fun with this. Um, You wrote a piece about a week ago on the NEA, which is the National Education Association, and a guidebook that's been around for a number of years on the LGBTQ ideology, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so I thought we could talk about that. And then in addition to that, in that article, you linked a very interesting survey a political survey that was done by a union research firm or a, a firm that's usually used by unions. Mm-hmm. And it kind of spells out a broader point of why unions shouldn't necessarily get into ideological issues. So why don't we talk mm-hmm. about your article first and then, and then the guidebook, if you will, um, and kind of expand from there. Sure. Well, let me give you a brief overview of the piece just to start off. So, The National Education Association, or the NEA, is the largest teachers union in the country. It has over 2.5 million members. And so the organization takes on typical union responsibilities like collective bargaining on behalf of its members. But in recent years, the NEA has really prioritized political advocacy. And this is pretty evident through their guide, Schools in Transition. It's a guide that was put together by several organizations, including the National Education Association, that instructs teachers how to support transgender students in the classroom. So this includes teaching children that the gender binary doesn't exist, that transgender identity is healthy and appropriate for kids as young as two years old, and that um, really any objections to children changing their gender are irrelevant. But really the most concerning piece of advice that I found in the piece was that the NEA tells its teachers in really no uncertain terms that parents don't need to know about any of this stuff being taught in schools. They don't need to know about their, their, child, their child's transition at all. So let me ask you, and I, I think I saw it when I opened up one of the links, the um, the guidebook, if you will, is it's been around for a while, right? Absolutely. Since 2015. Yeah. Which, so that's almost 10 years. Absolutely. And, and it, you know, this um, it will get broader, I think, but on the gender ideology that's been hitting the mainstream media, if you will. I don't even know if it's mainstream media, but it's been hitting the media. It's only been in the last couple of years that this seems to have been a big thing. Exactly. And that just goes to show how how much authority, how much power the NEA has in terms of, of um, guiding, I mean, social issues in the country. 
And they play a really interesting role because they have a lot of influence over our youngest generation. So they're really changing not only um, how children think about things, but how the future of our society is going to play out. And like you said, I mean, they've been pushing this stuff since 2015, which is long before any sort of this gender ideology gained widespread national attention. Yeah. And I guess another question to that is, um, is it really going down into the classrooms? And I'm, I'm kind of going back to the old days when I was in the union, um, we'd, we'd get stuff from the international, but it really, most people didn't even know what the interact international consisted of. And by that, I mean the national headquarters of the union. Are we seeing this widespread in classrooms? Like are, are, is the NEA forcing this on teachers or is it just, you know, this esoteric guide out there? I think a lot of it is guidance and it really depends on what state you're in um, and what town you're in. For example, I'm from California and the first time I found out about this was just doing some general research about California Teachers Association, which is the subsidiary of the NEA in California. And, um, you know, it's not just limited to this guide. I, I found the guide in a LGBTQ plus resources toolkit and this has a lot of different resources. I mean, it has a pronoun guide that tells tells um, teachers to wear pronoun pins and different ways that they can um, address students who don't conform to the natural gender or gender binary, um, other legal guidance on the rights of transgender kids. Um, but this is really just the one that stood out for to me. And so I think that it's, a, it's pretty widespread through the organization. How much that affects individual teachers, I think it really comes down to where you're teaching and um, your school. So let me play devil's advocate for a second. Yeah. Um, so I could see on the one hand that teachers should be treating every student individually with dignity and respect. And perhaps if we have what was the phrase you used? Non-gender conforming or non-binary gender conforming students that, you know, they deserve dignity and respect in the classroom as well. Um, So from that standpoint, I could see it as being a quote resource to help make them feel included. Mm -hmm. But on the other side of that, is it more, I I don't want to say aggressive, but is it more pushing that ideology Yeah. So, I mean, I agree with you. I think that all students in the classroom deserve the same amount of respect that anybody does, the same amount of respect as anybody does. But I mean, it's clear that the NEA, to me, it's clear that the NEA is really pushing a political agenda and it's not just about supporting kids. It's about um, teaching kids a certain ideology and disregarding the opinions of parents. Because, I mean, I don't think all parents want their kids to be learning about they, them pronouns. And, and I mean, I was just doing some research today about um, the NEA hosts a transgender reading day for kids every year. And so, I mean, I think it just comes down to um, the NEA is pushing a political agenda and that's pushing parents out of the classroom. And I mean, it's clear that they don't want parents to know what's going on in the classroom. And I think that raises a lot of red flags for me. Yeah, that that seems to cross the line because, you know, you're you're entrusting the public school system to educate your children on reading, writing and arithmetic and Mm -hmm. not to be advocates for one thing or another necessarily. Right. It's it's almost like, you know, 
and I don't know if this has happened yet or it may in the future, but you know, you are raising your children to believe in a specific religion and you know, they go to school and the first thing a teacher said is, you know, there's no God, mm-hmm. you know, which obviously there'd be problems with that, but this is almost akin to that. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, in a lot of public schools, I think there's an expectation that religion isn't going to come into the classroom. And that's um, out of respect for a lot of parents who might identify a, a different way. But I think that this transgender political ideology in the classroom is a different sort of religion. It's a different sort of worldview that is being pushed in the classroom and it's totally disregarding um, the parents who disagree. So I think we need to kind of reevaluate just public education in general and figure out I think, I mean, when I was a kid, I'm only 23, but when I was a kid, like none of that was in the classroom. And I think we need to go back to something a little bit ideologically neutral, because I think that's the best environment for ideas to be exchanged and for, for students to really learn and not be, not be forced to to think or learn in a certain way. Well, that kind of goes back to what I was saying a few minutes ago. It's like, it seems this document was written back in 2015 Mm-hmm. But it seems as though we haven't seen it as much until the last couple of years. Like when you were in school, you didn't see it, as you just mentioned. But it's yeah, been exactly. around for a while, kind of percolating underneath, so to speak. Yeah, and I think a big reason why it's gained so much widespread attention is, well, it's twofold. I think the teachers unions have a lot of power in the school systems, and they've really ramped up their political advocacy in the past couple of years between... I mean, political donations, millions and millions of dollars towards these um, groups that want to push this sort this sort of ideology in the classroom. Well, you know, everybody uses the term ideology, mm-hmm. and it's you know, what is an ideology? And I go to like Merriam-Webster, and it's a manner of the content of thinking characteristic of an individual group or culture. Mm-hmm the integrated assertions, theories, and aims that constitute a socio-political program. And I think in terms of definitions, that kind of fits what this ideology is. And then, of course, if you look at synonyms of ideologies, I'm I'm literally on Merriam-Webster's website right now. It's doctrine, Mm -hmm. philosophy, creed, gospel, dogma, axiom, theory, you know, all those are the cinnamons, cin- cinnamons, <laughs> synonyms of ideology. And, and we're kind of like in that realm. And it begs the question, is that the role of a union? Like, yeah, should they be? Mm-hmm. It's an interesting question because I don't think any of this is objective. It's still pretty new. And um, we're still going through, I mean, there's all these debates about whether it's scientific or whether it's um based on just opinions and feelings. And, and I don't think that, um, I don't think that the, tri- that the, um, the education association should be pushing anything in the classroom other than what we know for a fact. And I mean, uncontroversial, I mean, controversial topics shouldn't be taught in the classroom in this way. I don't think, because this is just such a hot political topic right now. And just to bring kids into it, I don't think, I don't think that's right. Especially the younger grades, maybe as you get into high school, later middle school, but I mean, this, this guide is telling teachers to start teaching this kind of, of stuff to kids age two to four, which is just inappropriate in my opinion. Well, and you know, to 
to go back to what you said a few minutes ago is they're trying to exclude parents from that, which mm-hmm. is for, if you're a parent, that's gotta be maddening. Exactly. And I, I am a parent, but my kids are already out of school. So it's, you know, they, they weren't indoctrinated with it as well. Yeah, exactly. And I'm, I'm a young adult. I'm coming into um, thinking about starting a family, start thinking about settling down. And it's, it makes me kind of concerned to put my kids in, in a public school, which is supposed to be a, a taxpayer funded public resource. Um, but I mean, I don't even feel comfortable that my tax dollars are funding this kind of stuff in the classroom now, because really, I mean, this, right. this affects all of us. It doesn't affect just teachers. It doesn't affect just people involved in the teachers unions. I mean, as taxpayers, we fund teacher paychecks and all of that money or a lot of that money goes to the NEA to fund this kind of stuff in the classroom. So, you know, it's, it's just, it's hard to be a young adult right now. It's hard to think about what the future is going to look like in the next couple of years, especially in the world of public education. Well, to that end, and I mentioned this before I hit the record button, you know, I, I go back four decades now and including almost a decade in the union movement as a union rep. And my philosophy I've always been somewhat libertarian mm-hmm. and I don't mean just politically, but I'm, I'm more of an individualist as opposed to getting into groupthink. So mm-hmm. my position, even as a union rep was that we provide a service and our service should be representing people on the job as the best we can. Mm-hmm. Now a teacher's union is a little bit different because your product is the children a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, however, when you're, Delving into, and this is why I believe this, when you're delving into political issues, I don't care if it's from the left to the right and or from the right to the left, you're alienating a percentage of your union membership. And so you had included this poll in the, uh, or poll survey from uh, Heart Research Associates in the article that you wrote. And this was, dated May of 2022. Mm-hmm. And it kind of goes to this point because, you know, if I go down with the questions and this was of course going into the midterm elections in this year's election for U S Senator, are you more likely to vote for the Republican candidate or the democratic candidate? And if you go down to the totals, 45% said Democrat, I'm sorry, 45% said Republican, 42% said Democrat. And then there's a bunch in the middle, 13% that were undecided. You know, you go down a little bit further, is your preference of the out, uh, outcome of this year's congressional elections a Congress controlled by Republicans or a Congress controlled by Democrats? 47% said Republican-controlled Congress. Democrat-controlled Congress was 41%, and then 12% not sure. So that in and of itself kind of tells you that you've got a membership that is divided. Mm-hmm. And so if you're trying to appease one side of that membership to the alienation of the other side of that membership, all that does is cause resentment towards your union. If you're a union member. Yeah, I think that's right. And you know, a lot of these questions on this poll are pretty evenly split. And that's something that really right. stood out to me is because I mean, the NEA the, the way they communicate these social justice issues makes me believe that all teachers believe the same way, you know, right. because as much as the NEA represents its members in the workplace, they're also representative of the 
the teachers as a whole, you know, what, what the teacher, teachers are thinking, what the teachers are teaching in the classroom. And, you know, it's just not reflective of the actual population of, of the union. And, you know, the other day I was listening to AFT, the American Federation of Teachers, the second largest teachers mm-hmm. association in the country. And I was listening to one of their town halls and um, their president, Randy Weingarten, kept talking about how um, they were going to come out in support of of Joe Biden for, for the next presidential election. And um, she kept mentioning that there were a lot of Republican members in the, in um, her union. I think she said something around 25%. And she said, she kept saying, Oh, I'm so happy that they're here, but this is something we need to do for the good of our country and the good of our nation. And so I don't even think they had a vote on whether or not they would endorse um, Joe Biden for the next presidency. That just goes to show, like, I think that the, the teachers unions in particular as well as a lot of other public sector unions, they don't really care what their members think. You know, they have a certain agenda in mind and that's what they're going to, they're going to go with and they're going to disregard a lot of their, their membership. And that's why it's important to recognize that, that, I mean, public sector union membership isn't mandatory and you don't have to be funding this kind of stuff with your, with your money from your paycheck if you don't agree with it. And I think that's something a lot of people don't, don't realize they don't know about their rights in that way. So this would be a good opportunity to do a plug for you guys, because the freedom foundation actually has what's called an opt out or opt out program, if you will, where they help public sector workers opt out after Janice. Mm -hmm. And I've had, I've had Max on a couple of times. We've talked about that. Just figured I'd stop right there and just mention the opt out (laughs) program. So your point though is uh, you've got a side point in there that a lot of folks don't realize. And you just mentioned AFT likely endorsing or probably 95, 99% mm. endorsing Biden-Harris for the 2024 election. And the members did not vote or did not get polled for that, right? No, they didn't. And that's something that is kind of a common um, occurrence among public sector unions. SEIU, for example, the first day that... Um, that President Biden announced his um, his candidacy for re-election, they immediately put out a Twitter post, we're endorsing Joe Biden, we're, yeah. we're ready to put our support behind him. And, and clearly there wasn't enough time there to have any sort of vote. And, you know, when, when it comes to those sort of big, huge political statements, I really think it should be up to the members, not up to just union leadership or union um, policy committees or, or stuff like that. It needs to be sort of a collective vote, a collective opinion, because that's what the union is for, to represent the ideas of its members, you know? Well, it yeah, and there's a side note. Um, and I don't know if you know this, but I, I'm pretty sure a lot of uh, listeners probably don't know this, is that once a union endorses a specific political candidate, that frees up the PAC money, the political action mm-hmm. committee money. So if, for example, SEIU endorsed Biden back in April, then they can start spending the PAC money to get Biden elected as opposed mm-hmm. to waiting until the primary season is over and, you know, the, the general election starts. They can start now. AFT can start now if they have already done the endorsement, NEA, any of the unions. So, right. however, a lot of private sector unions will actually do it, and it may not be, you know, 
completely scientific, but at least they'll go through the motions of asking their members how they feel about specific candidates before they endorse. Yeah. There's something about unions that are supposed to be so democratic. I mean, you vote for your union leadership, you vote for, I mean, union delegates to go to um, the national conferences, but for some reason, this just doesn't make the cut for a vote. I mean, you vote for strikes, you vote for everything. You just don't have a say in a lot of the spending of your dues, because I think that that's, I mean, if I was signing up for a union, I would expect all of my dues paycheck to go towards my representation in the workplace to paying union representatives to all that kind of typical stuff that you think of when you think of labor unions. But that's something that's been super surprising to me through all my research is how just how much of that money goes towards politics. And it's really surprising. I never really thought of of labor unions as political entities before before I started doing research, because that's just that doesn't seem like their their purpose or their historical purpose, their I mean logical purpose in general, you know. Well, and if you look at government unions, um when you say that my dues money should be going towards representation, well, in fact, what public sector unions have, and at least at the federal level, is something called official time. Mm-hmm. So it's not even the dues going to pay for the representation because the taxpayer monies are being used to pay for the union's meeting or union um, offices within the federal buildings, stuff like that. So it's, like it's literally just for salaries. Yep. And if that salary includes lobbying, although that's separated out from representation, it's still like, you know, it's your, your dues dollars are not going for just pure and simple union representation. Exactly. And I think that at least through my research, it's something that the um, big unions, especially the teachers unions don't, disclose to their members exactly what they're spending on. And a lot of times you have to do a lot of digging through. I mean, for example, I'm in California. I look through the California Secretary of State reporting system. And you have to do a lot of digging to figure out what things they're spending on, um, when they're spending on things. And, you know, I think that should be very um, transparent, at least to members, to know where exactly their money is going. Well, the unions will say, well, you can go online at whatever, you know, mm-hmm. and pull up the link. The problem is that most members won't do it. Exactly. And, and uh, unions know that. I knew that when I was a, a union rep that, you know, you really have to do your own research. And mm-hmm. most members are inclined to, and this was a pet peeve of mine, why I don't like professional sports, but they're more inclined to go watch the football game or mm-hmm. go hang out at the pool or whatever. You know, they don't want to dig into things. Yeah. Exactly. Besides, it's only a few dollars a month. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that's just a, a trend in our larger society. People just don't want to do the research behind things that that gets that gets said in, in schools, for example. I mean, I know we're talking about K through twelve education, public education, but I went to a public college, and a lot of my peers, you know, they just take what's what's being said to you without a grain of salt. Right. So I think it's important for, I mean, for students, for teachers, for anybody who's involved in the union to really take a, a double glance, like taking a second glance at what your union is spending on, what your union really stands for, 
because you're part of an organization that, like I said, is meant to represent you. And it's not all the time that they live up to that standard, which is pretty disappointing. Well, and, you know, this may tie all together, but um, you need to do critical thinking. Exactly. And if you're a college student, you should have some critical thinking skills coming into college that will enable you to challenge professors or at least do your own research. Mm-hmm. And if the professor's right, fine. If the professor's wrong and just pushing propaganda, you can, yep. you know, at least form your own conclusions. But I then agree. perhaps part of this, you know, push at the lower levels of K through 12 is to not have critical thinking skills going out either into college or the workplace. That's my thoughts exactly, because when a teacher's union, for example, is pushing this sort of political ideology in the classroom that's so dogmatic that's that you can't stand up against, you can't have a different opinion, then you throw critical thinking out the window, right? You're right. supposed to have, I mean, schools are supposed to be places where you can have diversity of thought and where you can share your opinion and be challenged, you know? I mean, that's the most, that's how we progress forward in terms of education and, and, and thought in general. And it's just so sad to see people putting that on the back burner and not prioritizing the um, educational well-being of, of kids. And it makes me a little bit worried for the future of our, of our society if, if people have just thrown critical thinking out the window. Well, it it enables um, people in power to do a lot of different things and not necessarily good if you don't have a citizenry that has critical thinking skills. And I think we're seeing that coming out of the pandemic as well. Exactly. Have you had conversations as you've been doing this research with any teachers on the ground? Here and there, but what I'm really looking forward to is, is next month, the Freedom Foundation is hosting a conference for teachers to kind of learn about all this stuff going on with the unions and especially with this kind of crazy gender ideology in schools. And so that'll be a great opportunity for not only teachers to network and realize that, you know, there are other people out there who think the same way, but also for me to really interact with people on the ground because so often, you know, I have friends who are teachers, but it's, it's kind of scary to bring this stuff up because people are so militant about it and so close-minded about it. So I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to really network with some teachers who who are already critical of that sort of teaching in the classroom and, and what the NEA is doing um, for teachers and for students. Now, is this an in-person event or is it um, Zoom type thing? It's in person. We have about 200 teachers signed up, so I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, that'd be fun. Yeah, and, and they're from all across good... the country. Okay, it's you have security too, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, good. Have to talk to Max about that. <laughs> Max will be there. Yeah. Um, so, I've you know, I've, I've got both friends and family who are teachers, and I've been trying to arrange a episode with them to see mm-hmm. how much. And I've been somewhat leery of, you know, I see this stuff on Fox News, and I see the, you know, posts and news articles, and a lot of it is political, Um, Mm -hmm. so I've been somewhat leery in saying, oh, this is definitely happening everywhere versus, you know, in pockets here and there. Mm -hmm. And so I've been, I've been trying to do an episode with, the um, hopefully three teachers if I can get them on, but 
up until summertime, it's just been impossible to schedule them. The, um, I'm fascinated because they're in different parts of the country. One's a California teacher that has now moved to the Southeast. And mm-hmm. I want to ask her what the differences she sees is. Um, another is a very good friend of mine in Arizona who's a high school teacher, which I'm surprised given our backgrounds as youths, um, he was allowed <laughs> to go into a classroom. Not in a bad way. We just did a lot of <laughs> stupid stuff. But, um, so... What else do you guys have coming up with the Freedom Foundation other than the, the teachers comp app? Sure. Yeah, we have lots of things in the works. I mean, we're really ramping up our staff now. Freedom Foundation is growing, which is very exciting. And I mean, I sit in meetings every week and I'm really excited by all the things I'm hearing. I mean, so far we're at over 150,000 opt-outs across the country mm. and that's growing every day. We're still working on... Um, Email campaigns, mail campaigns. This month is the anniversary of the Janus decision, so we're really excited about that. Um, and I'm always working on researching new ideas, um, digging into this stuff that, that really hasn't been publicized from teachers' unions, from really all public sector unions. But, you know, we're just putting our heads to the ground and continuing the grind. Actually, today, our CEO, Aaron, um, released his new book, which is really exciting as well. Ah, what's the title of that? Freedom is the foundation. <laughs> nice. Yeah, exactly. Nice little plug in there too. <laughs> For sure. I'll, I'll put a link to that on there. Um, so I guess one of the questions I have for you, for the listeners, sure. is you folks are based in California, but you do have presence in other states. Mm-hmm. And the as you mentioned, you've got um, 150,000 opt-outs from around the country. So what are the concentrated areas where you folks are? Absolutely. So, you know, the Freedom Foundation was founded in Olympia, Washington, Washington State. And from there, they kind of spread to Oregon and then into California. Um, Now we have a a new headquarters office in Dallas, Texas, Hmm. and that's part of our national expansion. Because after the work in, in Washington and Oregon, I think our leadership really just recognized the need for this across the country. And so um, California is obviously a hotspot, has the largest union population in the country. Um, New Jersey, New York is coming up pretty strong. Um, Florida, um, we've passed actually some legislation, we've helped pass some legislation in a couple of states, including Florida and um, Arkansas, I believe. And so, I mean, really, we're working all around the country. We're continuing to um, bring more people onto the team who have expertise from all around the country. But really still focusing on states like how union membership lies and and especially with teachers unions, that's where a lot of the most egregious, a lot of teachers to leave the classroom and leave the union. That's awesome. Well, Maddie Dermott, it is a pleasure having you on Labor Relations Radio. Thanks so much for having me, Peter. All right. We'll talk soon. Thanks. So that was Maddie Derman with the Freedom Foundation. And as always, I'm going to add some links under the audio portion of this episode of Labor Relations Radio. We started having some audio issues uh, towards the tail end. So if you think that stopped abruptly, that's why. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Always, man,
just a man living in a one-night stand. I'll tell you what I need. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoyed Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.